Chapter 27 Silex The ivory towers were burning. The invaders had first swarmed from the desert more than a year ago and almost overpowered the defenders in the first wave before the gates were closed and the great metal bolts of the portcullises secured. There were thousands of them, grim-faced desert warriors and mindless machines, spilling from the east like hungry insects. They looted the surrounding land, and what they could not carry, they burned. They were at the gates of Teresia City within days. They failed to take the city. The gates were shut in their face, and Misha's army was turned back. The next spring, they returned with a contingent of siege equipment, battering ramps, and dragon engines. They began the siege, a slow, torturous process that racked the city and its people. The towers proved their worth, for the enemy could not get close to the walls without suffering withering fire from the spires. Each tower was in turn protected by the city walls behind it and by the adjacent towers. The entire city was wrapped in a cocoon of stone and protected by a bristling array of ballistas, archers, and grapeshot catapults. A flying dragon engine made an attempt to burn the city to the ground, but as it flew overhead, it disintegrated from the firepower and shot brought to bear against it. There was no second attempt by Mishra's forces to fly over Teresia City. Through it all, there had been no clue as to the reason for the attack. The city had attempted to parley with the invaders, but any attempt to reason with them was met by arrow shot and swords. The intervening winter bought the city time, and the leaders used that time to fill the granaries, remove its innocence, and strengthen its defenses. The Union used the interval to press forward with its studies. It had been enough for the siege stretched into months without a sign of either side breaking. The scholars in their ivory towers had kept one of the two most powerful armies on the continent at bay while they continued their own work as they attempted to discover all the secrets of the third path, the path that was neither Mishra nor Urza. The path was charted by Hercules' meditative techniques, as Feldon had predicted. The key lay in concentrating on the memories of one's homeland and pulling forth the unknown energies from those memories and that land. Hercule discovered the energy, but the Archimandrite named it, calling it mana. Lorraine thought at the time that the name was misleading, smacking as it did of the old philosophy tales of wizards and not of science. But despite the name, the Archimandrite had succeeded in researching and refining this mana, had distilled it down to its base elements, and she turned those base elements into a weapon against the desert warriors. But now, Hercule was dead, the Archimandrite was missing, and the city of towers had been betrayed and occupied by the Falaji. The ivory towers were isolated, surrounded within and without, and one by one, they began to fall under Misha's concentrated assault. The Archimandrite's tower, one of the few that survived intact, was in disarray. In the center of the Archimandrite's hall, Drafnab bellowed at the Sumethan guards, shouting final orders for a sortie. His balding pate was barely visible over the shoulders of the gathered guards, but Loran knew the scholar's shout anywhere. Drafna stood up on a chair to be better heard, and Loran saw the wildness in his eyes, the manic intensity that seemed to grip the scholar like a fever, since Hercule had perished. The passage of time had not weakened that fire. He had been there when his wife had died at the city gates, when the Gixians had betrayed them. They had all seen the dangers without, but had ignored the rot within. The other scholars had paid scant heed to the machine-worshipping priests as they moved among them, saying little, but listening a great deal. The Gixians had learned much in Teresia City, and the scholars often treated them as harmless, if backward people. When the priests of the Brotherhood finally felt they knew enough, they betrayed the scholars and opened the city gates to the enemy. Hercule, ever attentive, figured out what was happening and convinced Drafna to rally those guardsmen who remained loyal. Drafna's forces tried to press back the Falaji assault and close the gates before the enemy could enter the city proper. But Mishra's troops were ready for the assault and had a trio of dragon engines ready to capitalize on the treachery. Drafna's forces were scattered at the gates 
and the dragon engines began to roll forward. That was when Hercule revealed to the enemy the greater power the Union had gained through their studies. Lorraine had watched from the closest of the towers during the assault, trying to bring the catapults to bear against the advancing dragon engines without harming the loyal garrisons. Hercule stood at the city gate, and for a brief moment, she was alone before the three dragon engines. She looked like a frail doll, dressed in azure, her thick black hair flying like a pennant behind her. She closed her eyes and silently raised her arms, and around her, the world began to change. A glow enveloped her, a sapphire hue as blue as the seas around the island of Latinam. It radiated outward, casting a new set of shadows against the ground. The human troops wavered under the light, and the dragon engines disappeared. They were not destroyed, nor did they simply fall or retreat. Instead, they slowly faded from view. The surroundings became clearer and clearer, until the engines seemed to be no more than colored fog. Then they were gone, gone through the actions of one woman. Hercule staggered from the force of her mystic work, and Misha's human forces took advantage of her weakness to press forward. Her sapphire glow was dimmed, then extinguished entirely beneath a wave of spearmen. Hercule had defeated the artifacts, but not the warriors who accompanied them. Loran saw Drafna trying to lead a charge to where his wife had disappeared beneath the spearmen, trying to hack his way through the enemy to reach her, but it was too late. The bald-headed scholar was driven back to another tower, and the city itself fell to Misha's forces. The city was sacked and burned, its surviving populace butchered, and its glass roof smashed so that not a single panel remained whole. The scholars in the tower collapsed their tunnels back into the city itself, sealed their windows against the smoke and the cries of the martyred, and prepared for the worst. First one, then a second. Then a third of the ivory towers fell to the invaders, who moved in a circle around the city itself like an apocalyptic clock. There would be no salvation from the Falaji, no last-minute rescue. Lorraine had received correspondence from a friend still in Argive, months out of date, but speaking of a rebellion among the dwarves of the Sardia Mountains. Urza would have his own hands full, Lorraine realized, and there was no one else to oppose Misha in the west. Nature brought a brief respite. A sandstorm blew up out of the desert to the east, carrying a heavy thick load of dust that reduced visibility and halted Misha's army entirely. Many of the scholars used the storm as a cover to escape from the city itself, taking with them what they learned about the new teachings. Some said the Archimandrite had fled, though others said she had been captured by Misha. And still, others said the sandstorm was her doing, as the banishing of the dragon engines had been Hercules. Yet the storm would not last forever, and with its passing, the ivory towers would again begin to fall, one after another. Those scholars who survived were preparing to abandon the city entirely now. The land beneath the towers was honeycombed with tunnels, and enough survived to allow safe escape to the hinterlands. Drafna bellowed another set of orders at the Sumifan guards and servants, who moved with the calm, relaxed demeanor with which Sumifans did all things. Loran looked around, but did not see Feldon. She had been sure he would make it to this tower, if he could. She found him in his study, staring at the Golgothian silex. He looked up briefly from the copper's bowl, and sighed as she entered. Fill it full of memories, and start over again, he said. Scrap it all clean, like a glacier. If what it says is true, said Loran. However, I think it would be as dangerous to the user as to its target. Feldon grunted and rose. I agree. Drafna ordered me to fetch every bit of artifice in the tower. He intends to lead a sortie with the surviving guards, to fight his way all the way back to Latnam if he has to. He's in a fey mood, that one. I think he'd be more happy if he died than if he made it out. Anyway, I sent everything else down but this. His voice died 
as he stroked the side of the silex. Do you think it will work? asked Lorraine. That it will end everything as it claims? Feldon looked at her. Do you want to find out? he asked. Lorraine looked at the bowl for a long moment, her thoughts racing. Then she shook her head. There's too much we don't know about this. Feldon nodded. Agreed. But if we do not use something like this, what shall we do with it? We should destroy it, said Lorraine. I don't know if we can, said Feldon. It's been beneath the sea for who knows how long, and has resisted every attempt to take a sliver of metal from its side. Perhaps Hercule could have done something to it with her mana. Again, he let his voice die. He looked at the bowl for a long time. I don't want to give it to Drafna, he said. Are you afraid he'd lose it? asked Loran. I'm afraid he'll use it, corrected Feldon. Since Hercule died, he's been, well, strange. I don't think he really cares if the rest of the world survives or not. His world died with his wife, Loran said, and Feldon nodded in agreement. So take it with you yourself. We have to leave soon. With my game leg, I won't go far, said Feldon. He tapped his cane against his twisted limb for effect. I'm going to try to get out, but I think I'd better be traveling light. There was a pause, and Loran said, You want me to take it? That's where this is going. Feldon gave a bear-like shrug. You're leaving as well, either by tunnels or of Drafna's charge. By the tunnels said Loran. And you're coming with me. Too old, too lame, he said. You make better time without me, and there's a better chance of knowledge surviving if we split up. There's a small town at the foot of the Ronan Glacier called Ketha. I'll meet you there within the year if I survive. But yes, you should take it. Loran pursed her lips. Why me? Have you been able to use the meditative techniques? asked Feldon. Have you been able to pull the mana from the land? Lorraine held up her hands. I don't believe that this is magic of any type. It is merely science that we have yet to understand. Feldon leaned against his chair. The answer would be, no you have not. Lorraine looked at Feldon, then looked at the bowl. He was right. She had not been able to master the techniques, either because of her own memories of home were too faded, or her home was too remote, or the land was no longer as she remembered it. She considered that option as well, and wondered if that was part of the science of this new and untried field. At last, she shook her head. That's why you should take it, said Feldon. I've had small success myself, though I think of mountains and ice when I do it. Everyone seems to be different, and can manifest slightly different effects. Yet you have not, and that is why you should take it. Because if something bad happens, I will not be able to use it in a moment of weakness said Lorraine flatly. Feldon looked at the woman and let out a deep, heavy sigh. Lorraine took the bowl. The feeling of shadow descended upon her as she grasped it, and she almost let it go. Instead, she hefted it, looked at Feldon, and said, Do you have a bag for this? Feldon produced a battered backpack, one of his own from his glacier-exploring days, and Lorraine slid the bowl into it. It was heavy, but its weight was minor compared to the aura of dread that surrounded it. Loran and Feldon made their goodbyes, and she hugged him. When they parted, there were tears in her eyes. Come with me, she urged. We'll scatter like geese, said Feldon. They can only shoot so many of us. Small comfort, if you're one of the geese that shot, said Loran. Look after yourself.
You as well, said Feldon. Then she was gone. Feldon packed the last of his own belongings in a second backpack, pausing as he heard Draftnut bellowing orders, readying the surviving troops for their assault. By now, Lorraine would be in the tunnels, hopefully still free of Mishra's forces and the hated Gixians. Feldon hoisted his pack and shook it, trying to move the heavier items to the bottom. Below, he heard the great doors of the tower swing open and the cries of the men and women who were going to fight their way past Mishra's army. At least, he thought, that's what they hoped. Feldon counted to a hundred, just to assure himself they would be gone, then counted to a hundred a second time. Then, gripping his walking cane securely in one hand, he began to hobble his way down to the tunnels. As he limped along, he mumbled prayers. For himself, for the rest of the surviving scholars, for Draphna, for the Archimandrite, and for Loran, particularly for Loran. A month later, Loran lay dying, her right side smashed and twisted by the rockfall. A few feet away from her, the Silex had spilled out of its backpack and lay glimmering among the rubble. She made it to the foothills of the Kolokin Mountains before disaster struck. The surviving populace had flowed through Misha's lines like water through a steel sieve, spilling in all directions, seeking escape to every carnal point save east. Loran had joined a group of Yumak nationals who wanted no more than to quit these supposedly civilized lands and return to their upland homes. They were moving through the first passes when the avalanche hit. It struck without warning. One moment, a caravan of refugees wound its way among the cliffs. The next, there was thunder from a clear blue sky and a rain of stone and soil as the path disappeared. Loran heard screams and shouts around her, but they were soon lost in a torrent of rock. Not after all this, she remembered thinking. She made a silent and passionate plea to the gods long ignored. She remembered thinking as well. This was no accident. She had been right. Now that the dust had settled, figures moved among the debris. At first, she thought there were other refugees who survived the rock slide and were searching for survivors. She tried to raise an arm to call them and realized she could not move her right arm. Her entire side was a thick smear of blood along her travel cape and it hurt to move her head to look at it. Suddenly, she realized the figures were not Umox. They were dressed entirely in spiked armor with heavy flowing capes. They moved among the debris, poking at the bodies nonchalantly with their swords. They were looters. They had set the avalanche, she realized. They had brought the mountain down on the caravan to scavenge the bodies. She must have shuddered or spasmed in a pain at the thought, for a voice over her right shoulder called, We've got a survivor! The voice was muffled behind steel, but fairly close. Good, responded another voice, this one female and unmuffled. I was afraid that you did your job too effectively, Captain. Loran tried to turn herself about to see who was talking, but she could only twitch. Heavy gauntleted hands lay on her shoulder, and she felt pain radiate from her wounds. A face hove into view behind a thick metal visor. It looked like one of Urza's automatons, save for the fact there were human eyes behind the eye holes. They were not particularly warm or comforting, but they were human. Alive or dead? asked the female voice. Alive but not by much, said the man behind the visor. His breathing was as sharp as her own, and Loran realized what was in those eyes. Pain. There was pain in the soldier's eyes. We don't need by much, said the woman. The armored figure stepped aside for a moment, and Loran saw the woman. She was dressed in similar spiked armor, but lacked a helmet. Loran could see thick red curls spilling onto her shoulder plates. We just need a little information, the woman continued coldly. And then she could die like the others. 
there was no pain in this red-haired woman's eyes, only power. Milady, look at this, said the soldier, coming back into view. He was carrying the bowl-shaped silex. Loran must have tried to move, twist it in place, try to say something. All she knew was that a moment later, she was in intense pain, pain that seared through her like a blade. When her senses cleared again, she saw the red-haired leader turning the silex over in her hands. Ashnod, she realized, and wondered if her lips formed the words as she said them. But word was that Ashnod had been cast out from Misha's camp. What was she doing here, with her own soldiers then? Interesting, said Ashnod, running her slender fingers along the inside of the bowl, tracing the script within as it spiraled to the base. Most interesting, and I think our little friend knows about it. You're not Yumak, nor Falaji. Some scholar from the East, perhaps. Lorraine said nothing, and wondered if she would be able to die before anything else horrible happened to her. The stories of Ashnod's cruelty were legendary. The red-haired woman seemed to read her mind, for she said, We're going to have to nurse this one back to health, Captain. And then, she has much that she's going to tell us. I'm sure of that. Lorraine willed herself to die, but her only reward was Ashnod's laughter.